Good evening. Thank you for being here. I know that we are down in number tonight. We've got a number of folks that are out of town. Some are, some are on vacation and some are away at camp, and so we want to keep them in our prayers this week. I'm not sure how many went to camp this week, but we hope and pray that they'll have a safe week and that all will be well. They'll be back safe and sound on Friday. Remember again, VBS is coming Saturday from 9 to 2, and uh, thank you to all who are making VBS this year a reality. I know that a lot of work has already gone into the planning and preparation, and so it's our hope that it's going to be a great day. I know that it will. Uh, I would encourage you to invite your friends and neighbors to come and be a part of that. Tonight, we're going to be looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And this is another one of our key chapters. We've been looking at key chapters in Scripture beginning in January. And tonight we come to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And there is a lot of information packed in chapter 13. And really, in order to, I guess, fully appreciate the magnitude of what Paul's saying in chapter 13, you have to look at chapters 12, 13, and 14 as a unit. Because really they go together. In chapter 12, the Apostle Paul sets forth an enumeration of spiritual gifts. In chapter 13, he talks about the duration of these spiritual gifts. And then in chapter 14, the regulations concerning these spiritual gifts. And so as you look at chapter 13, there is a contrast between that which is permanent. There are certain things that are permanent fixtures in the church. And then there is that which, according to Paul, was at that point in time passing away, and that would have to do with those spiritual gifts. And so we're going to look at that in detail tonight. I want to begin our study. Let me just say this on the front end. There is a lot of misunderstanding concerning spiritual gifts in the religious world today. Much of the confusion and misunderstanding could be cleared away if we would go back and just look at context and think about the purpose of those spiritual gifts as set forth by the Lord. And I would remind you, back in John chapters 13, 14, 15, and 16, you remember again the Lord Jesus was talking specifically to the apostles. And He told them that following His departure, they would be the recipients of the Comforter or the Helper, the Holy Spirit. And He said that He would teach them all things and bring all things to their remembrance that He had said to them in chapter 14, verse 26. In chapter 16, verse 13, He said that when the Spirit of truth is come, He will guide you into all truth. And then you remember in Mark 16, when Jesus gave the Great Commission to go into all the world, preach the gospel to every creature. In verse 16 he said, He that believes and is baptized shall be saved. He that believes not shall be condemned. And then in verse 17 he would say, And these signs will follow those who believe in my name. And then he talks about those very specific signs that no doubt were set forth in the Scriptures. He said that, for example, they would take up serpents. They would speak with new tongues. He said that they would lay hands on the sick and they would recover, and so on. And then the Bible says that the Lord was taken up from heaven, seated at the right hand of God, and those who were instructed with the Great Commission, that is the apostles, 
The Bible says they went out preaching everywhere, the Lord working with them, confirming the Word through the accompanying signs. And so there was a purpose behind the miraculous age in the first century. So what I want us to do tonight is to look at the church at Corinth because we have a template here that helps to really clear away the fog with regard to these miraculous gifts. One of the problems that existed in Corinth, well, let me just back up and say this. There were a lot of problems that were present in the church at Corinth. In chapter 1, you remember, one of the things that was problematic to the church, there was division among them. And Paul said that there was to be no division among them. They were to be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. He also said that they were to all speak the same thing. But the problem was there was a party spirit in Corinth. Some were saying, I'm of Apollos. And some were saying they were of Paul, some of Cephas, some of Christ. Well, that wasn't God's intent. So you turn over to chapter 3. In chapter 3, the apostle Paul says to the church at Corinth that they were carnal. In other words, they were carnally minded. They weren't spiritually minded people. And he told them that what existed among them was, in effect, the behavior of men. He said there was strife and envy and divisions among them. And again, that party spirit. Some were saying they were of Cephas. Some were saying they were of Paul and Apollos and so on. And so Paul deals with a number of problems in this book. In chapter 4, verse 18, Paul said that they were puffed up or arrogant. In chapter 5, you remember, immorality was going on within the church. And again in verse 2, he said they're puffed up. In other words, they're arrogant. In chapter 8, verse 1, Paul said knowledge puffs up, love edifies. So again, this problem of arrogance. And there was a misunderstanding of the purpose of the spiritual gifts. And so Paul is going to deal with that. And they had some grave misunderstandings about that. Now, in chapter 12, I mentioned the fact that Paul here enumerates some nine spiritual gifts. These are not the only spiritual gifts that were present in the first century church. Matter of fact, you can go back and read Romans chapter 12. And I counted in Romans chapter 12 at least an additional seven gifts added to these nine very specific spiritual gifts set forth by Paul in chapter 12. So in chapter 12, look if you would and listen to what Paul has to say. The spiritual gifts that had been given, the source of those was the Spirit. And even though there were diversities of gifts, they all came from the same source. Look at verse 4. There are diversities of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are differences of ministries, but the same Lord. There are diversities of activities, but it is of the same God who works all in all. But the manifestation of the Spirit is given to each one for the profit of all. For to one is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit. To another, the word of knowledge through the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit. To another, gifts of healings by the same Spirit. To another, the working of miracles. To another, prophecy. To another, discerning of spirits. To another, different kinds of tongues. To another, the interpretation of tongues. So you have the diversity of gifts spoken of by Paul here. 
Those gifts were given for the edification of the well-being of the church. So you have these diverse gifts, but ultimately the goal was to edify the church. He illustrates that by talking about the church and the human body. There's an analogy there. And he says that the church is one body but is composed of many members. And then he talks about the human body and how the human body is just one body, but we have different members. And those members have a very specific function. Well, the same thing was true with regard to spiritual gifts. So Paul is dealing with some major problems in the church at Corinth. So now we turn our attention to the prescription set forth. Now look at chapter 13 in verse 1. Paul here talks about the motivation behind our service in the kingdom. Ultimately, everything that we do ought to be done out of love. God is the very epitome of love, isn't He? 1 John chapter 4, verse 8, God is love. And those of us who belong to the body of Christ, we are to be endowed with love in our lives, aren't we? Remember Jesus said, By this shall all men know that you are my disciples, if you have love one for another. Over and over again, the Bible talks about the importance of love. We're to love God with all, with all of our heart, soul, and mind. And Jesus said, that's the first and great commandment. The second is to love our neighbor as ourselves. So love, very important. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, listen to what Paul said. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I become a sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith, so that I could remove mountains, but have not love? He said, I'm nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, but have not love, it profits me nothing. Now you remember back in chapter 8, I mentioned the fact that Paul said, knowledge puffs up. Love, however, does what? It, edify, it edifies, doesn't it? And so Paul now begins to enumerate or isolate certain characteristics that ought to be typified in the lives of God's children. The problems that existed in Corinth could have been rectified or remedied if they would have internalized or if they would have taken to heart the message of the Apostle Paul. So listen to what he says in verse 4. Love suffers long. We talk about being long-suffering. The Bible talks about God as being long-suffering. One of the things that is to accompany preaching and teaching. We preach with all long-suffering. Why? Well, the goal is that hopefully and prayerfully the message of Christ will resonate in the hearts and lives of people and ultimately bring forth fruit. So he said, love is not only long-suffering, but it is kind. It's not harsh and hard. And I would say this. It might be the case that in our presentation of truth that we're hard and harsh rather than speaking the truth in love. That's not to say that there are things that we have to say sometimes that are hard and difficult, but the tone, the manner in which we say them. You remember the Apostle Paul when he wrote to the church at Ephesus, writing to Christians in that city. He said that they were to be kind, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, has forgiven you. 
He said, love doesn't envy. Remember back in chapter 3 what he said about the church at Corinth? There was strife and envy and divisions among them. Jealousy. That will undermine the well-being of, of a congregation, won't it? And then he said, love doesn't parade itself. And I'm reminded back in Matthew chapter 6 when Jesus talked about the religious leaders of that day, particularly the scribes and the Pharisees. They were all about show, weren't they? And they were interested in people observing how they lived so that they might say, you know what, those are some righteous people. And he uses certain illustrations, engaging in charitable acts or benevolent acts, fasting. And so the idea is that we don't do things for show. Love doesn't do that. Matter of fact, in Matthew chapter 23, Jesus said, with regard to the scribes and the Pharisees, outwardly they appear righteous before men, but inwardly they're full of all uncleanness. And so they were interested in putting on a dog and pony show when in reality, in, internally speaking, they had lots of problems. And then he said, love is not puffed up, it's not arrogant. Note if you would verse 5. Love does not behave rudely. There's a real need in the world today for people to be kind and courteous. There's some folks that are rude, aren't they? And sadly, sometimes, even in the body of Christ, there are members who are rude. Not only to one another, but to those in the world. So what we say and how we carry ourselves and the things that we do on a daily basis say a lot about who we are and what we are and who we belong to. Paul said, love does not seek its own. It's not selfish, is it? But rather, it looks out for the good of other people. And one of the real characteristics of a child of God is selflessness, not selfishness. And Jesus points that out in Matthew chapter 16. If any man will come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. And then note if you would, Paul said, it's not provoked. Are there not people that you know that have the ability sometimes to provoke you? They know what buttons to push, and when they do, what happens? But Paul said, love is not easily provoked. You know, there are some things that theoretically sound good, but making application, internalizing, and living those things out, sometimes it's easier said than done, isn't it? Paul would say that love thinks no evil. We ought to think the best of others. There's some folks that relish in thinking the worst. But we ought to give brethren the benefit of the doubt. And then he said that love does not rejoice in iniquity. Love doesn't delight in the misfortunes and failures and sins of other people. There are some folks that when they see someone tumble and fall or fall into sin, they gloat over that. It's as if they're happy about that. That's not the attitude that we ought to have as a child of God. We ought to feel sorry for them. And we ought to seek their highest good. Paul goes on, 
to say that love rejoices in the truth. Those who love the Lord, love divine truth, are willing to abide in truth. As a matter of fact, Solomon said, buy the truth and sell it not. Truth is, is very special to those who belong to the family of God. And then he said, love bears all things. In other words, love has the ability to bear heavy loads. There are times in life when, as children of God, we bear the loads of others, don't we? Or we try to bear the loads of others. Paul would say in Galatians chapter 6, Bear ye one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. Love not only bears all things, but believes all things. Then he said, love, listen to him, hopes all things. Love is not pessimistic, but rather is optimistic. And then it endures all things. Love doesn't give up. There is this resilient spirit, this steadfastness that accompanies agape love. And then Paul said, love never fails. So with that in mind, I want you to now think about the permanency, note the contrast again, the permanency of these characteristics or qualities of love and that which is passing away, these spiritual gifts. And so there are some provisions here set forth by the Apostle Paul. So I want you to pick up with me in verse 8 again. Here's what Paul said. Whether there are prophecies, they will fail. Whether there are tongues, they will cease. Whether there is knowledge, it will vanish away. He said, we know in part and we prophesy in part. Following the, following the ascension of Jesus, you remember in reading Acts chapter 2, we have the birth of the church. From that time forward, we have the church beginning to grow at what we might call an accelerated rate. And so the church is pictured by way of birth and then her infancy and continued growth. Well, accompanying the infancy of the church and the growth of the church were spiritual gifts. Again, these gifts were imperative to the overall, overall work of the church. Revelation. In the first century, when the church began, they did not have completed revelation. In other words, they didn't have the New Testament as we have it. It was being given bit by bit and piece by piece, wasn't it? So you got 27 books that are being composed, superintended by the Holy Spirit. As Peter said, holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. Paul here is saying that revelation came bit by bit and piece by piece. But there was a purpose, and that is the completion of Revelation. Now, I want you to turn over with me, if you would, to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4 is a commentary or supplemental to what Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Pick up in verse 7, if you would. Paul said, but 
to each one of us grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. We're talking there about spiritual gifts. Therefore, he says, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. Again, these spiritual gifts. Now this, he ascended, what does it mean? But that he also first descended into the lowest parts of the earth. He who descended is also the one who ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers. Now look at verse 12. For the equipping of the saints, for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ till we all come to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Paul here talking about revelation and the fact, again, that revelation was given bit by bit, but ultimately the design was that we would have completed revelation. Once we received completed revelation, those spiritual gifts no longer needed. Well, how do I know that? Well, let's go back again. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 13. You might keep your finger on Ephesians chapter 4. We're going to run back there again in just a moment. Listen again to what Paul said in verse 8. Whether there are prophecies, he said, they will fail. Whether there are tongues, they will cease. Whether there is knowledge, it will vanish away. We know in part, we prophesy in part. But when that which is perfect has come, the perfect here is not Christ. Nor is he talking about heaven. In this context, he's talking about revelation. That's the design here. When that which is perfect has come, then that which is in part will be done away. In other words, once we receive completed revelation, Paul's saying, then the spiritual gifts, there's no longer need for them. So in verse 11, he compares the infancy of the first century church to a child. And ultimately, the church would reach a stage of maturity. Well, when would that occur? When we have completed revelation? So listen to what he said. When I was a child, I spoke as a child. I understood as a child. I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. He's talking there about revelation and about these spiritual gifts. And the comparison there is to a child. Once that child reached manhood, he put away childish things. Once the church reached a state of maturity, Having completed revelation, again, no need for spiritual gifts. So in verse 12, he said, Now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. In other words, again, emphasis on completed revelation. Now, with that in mind, we'll come back again to 1 Corinthians chapter 13, but look again at Ephesians chapter 4. Listen again to what Paul said. He said that the Lord gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers. Again, verse 11. Well, why? For the equipping of the saints, for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. And I would encourage you this week, read chapter 14 of 1 Corinthians. 
The theme of that chapter is edification. In verse 13 he said, Till we all come to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Now listen to verse 14. You remember what he said back in chapter 13, 1 Corinthians? When I was a child, I thought as a child, I understood as a child, etc. That we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness by which they lie and wait to deceive. But speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things unto Him who is the head, Christ, from whom the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies, according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. Those spiritual gifts that were given, they complemented the church, didn't they? They were given for the edification of the church. They were given also to evangelize. But again, once revelation was completed, those spiritual gifts weren't needed anymore, were they? That's what Paul's saying here. That's what he's saying in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. He's saying that there were some things that were temporary. They would pass away. And then there are things that are permanent in nature. Well, with that in mind, look again 1 Corinthians chapter 13 very quickly. Paul said, We see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part. But then, he said, I shall know just as I am also known. God's Word has the ability to enlighten us about where we are in life, doesn't it? Doesn't the Word of God, doesn't the Word of God show us who we really are? Didn't the Hebrew writer say in chapter 4, verse 12, that the Word of God is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart? In other words, it's a critic. So when I look into the perfect law of liberty, I can see myself clearly, can I? I can see things that I'm, that I'm doing right. I can see things that, I, that I'm doing wrong. It helps me to adjust my life to make corrections. And that fits with what Paul said in 2 Timothy chapter 3, that Scripture is inspired of God and profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction in righteousness. Well, why? That the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped unto every good work. And then verse 13, And now abide faith, hope, love, these three, but the greatest of these is love. There were things that would remain a constancy in the church. Think about how important faith and love. And the hope that we're talking about here is not that pie-in-the-sky type hope. Hope so, think so, maybe so. But rather it is hope grounded in the truth of Almighty God, isn't it? As the Apostle Paul said that we live in hope of life eternal, which God who cannot lie promised before the world began. Tonight really has been more of a class than a lesson or sermon per se. But when you look at chapters 12, 13, and 14, you see the purpose of the spiritual gifts that are outlined in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, Romans chapter 12, 
and you realize that they were temporary in nature. Think for a minute about, think about on Pentecost Day when Peter and the other apostles preached to all those people that had assembled in Jerusalem. They're there for the observance of Pentecost. The gospel is preached. Some 3,000 people obeyed the gospel, didn't they? The Bible says in verse 47, the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. When those people began leaving the city of Jerusalem and going back home, and you had people from varying places that had assembled in Jerusalem for a specific purpose. When they left that city, you didn't have apostles standing at the gate of the city and saying, oh, by the way, take this book right here, the Bible, read it, study it, and follow it. They didn't have that. They didn't have completed revelation. And so that's why you had inspired men. The Bible was in men in the first century. Today it's in completed form, isn't it? And so we talk about the all-sufficiency of Scripture. It might be that you're here tonight and you're not a Christian. A lot of important decisions in life. The most important decision that you'll ever make is whether or not you'll become a child of God. You can say yes, you can say no. You can defer and say, you know, maybe later. But at some point in time, you've got to make a decision. Now, when you don't make a decision, in effect, you do make a decision, don't you? So tonight, if you're here and you haven't obeyed the gospel, and you believe with all of your heart that Jesus is the Son of the living God, and you would be willing to repent of all your sins and confess the name of Christ, be immersed as they were in Jerusalem on Pentecost Day, the Bible says that you will enjoy the forgiveness of sins. Paul said your sins will be washed away. Acts 22, 16. And then the exhortation is, be faithful. And if you live a life of faithfulness to God, then one day you'll hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant. That's the goal, isn't it? To get to heaven. You know, if you miss heaven, you miss everything, don't you? So our goal is to go to heaven. We want to take as many people with us as humanly possible. So tonight, if you're here, you're not a Christian, we encourage you to come to Christ. If you're here, for whatever reason, you're not what you ought to be as a child of God, and you want the prayers of the church. Listen, we'd be happy to pray on your behalf. I know sometimes there is real reluctance on the part of people to ask for the prayers of the church. But I would encourage you to remember what James said. Confess your faults one to another. Pray one for another. We have that privilege, don't we? If we could pray for you tonight... Please, let us do so as we stand and sing.